If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books in Sociology podcast channel. I am Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Rafia Zakaria, author of Against Feminism, Notes on Disruption. Hello, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How are you? Great. I would wonder if you could start by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Um. <clears throat> So, yeah, my name is Rafia Zakaria. I am a, um, a writer, uh, mostly of uh, opinion columns, and also uh, a lawyer. And uh, I'm a Pakistani-American, uh, but now I think I've lived more of my life in the U.S. than I have uh, full-time in, in Karachi, Pakistan where I'm from, Um, you know, in terms of um, the impetus for this book, I think, um, you know, most immigrants have an inside-outside perspective. And um, so I've I've kind of been um, involved in a lot of different things, all of which have kind of led to this moment uh, where, you know, I wanted a text that would reveal two white women, particularly the white women that are interested in being allies uh, for women of color to um, understand what it feels like to inhabit the skin of, for instance, in my case, being a brown Muslim woman. And um, and some of it also came from the frustration that I uh, saw 
uh, you know, I, I've been in academia, I've been in the practice of law, of course, now I've been a writer for about, um, you know, almost 10 years. And um, was that, you know, there, there is space being that is made for women of color, uh, black and brown and Asian and Latinx women. But, um, but, but they remain, uh, it, rem it, it remains still uh, very tokenized and very peripheral. So, you know, for instance, if, uh, you know, there's Black History Month or Women's History Month, you'll get, you'll get books or discussions around these topics. But the, the, the inordinate number of, or like the, the, the large swath of um, mainstream discourse continues to be centered around white women, and in particular, white upper middle class women. And what I wanted to do is to expose how um, whiteness, or rather white supremacy, and its history in the United States and, and, the, and the Western world at large has allowed white women to become the feminists in chief or the supreme feminists who then dictate the agenda for black and brown and other women of color. And the consequence of this dominance and the fact that nobody has really ever questioned or looked at uh, how it operates, uh, not just in the media or even uh, historically, but, but in nearly every sphere of public interaction. Um, and in the case of the United States, this feminism is then also exported abroad, um, you know, as the feminism that all other women and all other parts of the world must copy. And, you know, the, and the better they are at copying it, the more, quote unquote, empowered um, they're understood to, or they're, they're, they're then labeled to be. Um, so, you know, as someone who's, who grew up in what I would call the quote unquote other part of the world. And then someone who um, has worked and uh, been part of uh, the public conversation in the US, I felt that as a brown woman, as I felt that that, that impact ha is, is not something that white women have reckoned with. Um, in many cases, white women have, uh, you know, or, or don't want to consider uh, the, the premise that white privilege and white supremacy in the culture at, at large has contributed to their feminist victories. Um, so that was kind of the intellectual project behind the book. Um, I think the emotional project or, you know, motivation behind the book was that, um, you know, I, 
you know, like most most brown black women, I have uh, white women who are my friends who I'm close to, and um, I've always felt that that there that I didn't have a launching pad from where to begin a conversation about race within the feminist movement, and so I wanted to. Um, have it or, or write a text that would allow for that starting point that would create the context for that conversation. Because I believe that, you know, that conversation about race uh, among feminists is absolutely and urgently necessary. Well, you started the book off talking about going to a bar in Manhattan with a group of women. Tell us about that story and why it's so significant. <laughs> that story is significant because I've lived so many versions of it uh, so many times. You know, it hasn't just it didn't just happen once um, where I am with women, most of whom, and in the media and publishing, you know, white women dominate. They, uh, you know, they're, they're second only to white men. And I think they're actually set to overtake white men, like in, in, in the publishing world. And, uh, you know, so it's an environment of like uh, developing some camaraderie, doing some networking, getting to know each other, uh, but there is this undertone of that I have always felt as a woman of color of trying to, of pretending, of trying to belong to a conversation in which my past, you know, as I, as I talk about that, oh, of my past as a single mother, my past as someone who lived in a shelter, uh, my past as an immigrant, et cetera, et cetera, my, past, my present as a Muslim woman is all sort of um, like, it's something that I, that I have to sort of sweep under the rug, so to speak, uh, because, because I have to pretend to belong to this white upper middle class version of how um, we get along. So, the point of that example is that, or what I'm trying to show in any case, is how um, a lot of women of color um, feel like they have to be, they have to pretend to be white, to be, you know, in the feminist sisterhood. And um, such that there isn't much effort to delineate what aspects of feminism are just white are just you know whiteness or white culture and what are actually aspects that are focused on empowering women uh, and that has happened because like I said white women are considered the universal subject you know so when you talk about quote unquote woman um, it's always white and largely white middle-class women's concerns that are centered in the feminist conversation. 
And the rest of us have to sort of just pretend and omit and file away, you know, the parts of us that don't fit into those boxes. So someone would would say, what's wrong with rich white women being the rescues persons of brown and black women? How would you answer that question? Um, you know, that's a great question. And it, the, the, the central problem with it is that it has created, uh, you know, the white woman savior model of feminism has created a hierarchy within feminism so that, um, you know, white women are at the top and they're dictating the feminist agenda. And then it's their qualities um, and sort of, you know, cultural iterations that are being held up as the feminist, um, as the feminist uh, or the most feminist qualities. And everyone else's concerns and uh, everyone else's, um, you know, priorities, uh, everyone else's qualities um, are sort of sidelined as not that important. And, um, and it's also, of course, created the situation where uh, I, I don't think, you know, for instance, I mean, I, I give a lot of examples in the book about, you know, random personal experiences that I've had in which I see either myself or other women of color be put in positions where they supply stories of, of trauma and stories of um, suffering. Um, and then the policy work or the agenda setting or the leadership is all white women. And this has essentially meant that, you know, brown and black women have not had the opportunity to delineate what is important, um, you know, what is, what is important to them. And I'll give you, I'll give you an example. It's a historical example, but it's an example in the book. And it comes from, um, you know, uh, the, the time right after the suffrage movement. So in the time right after the suffrage movement, there were a lot of British uh, suffragists that, uh, you know, were going to India to sort of uh, drum up what they, you know, thought would be a suffragist movement in India, right? for Indian women. And the problem with that was that, um, you know, India at the time was a British colony. Uh, so nobody in India was free at that time. Um, and so these suffragists went to some of the prominent feminists in India at the time. And all of those women were engaged in uh, the anti-colonial struggle to be free from British rule. 
And these white women go to them and they say, well, but don't you want to, don't you want the vote? Don't you want to be able to vote? Don't you want to be equal to men? And the brown woman said, I don't want to be equal, they said, to brown men, because brown men are suffering under the yoke of British rule, just like we are. So we want freedom first and freedom from British rule first. And then we, you know, um, immediately want the vote. So, and, you know, and I present that example because it really shows uh, this kind of blindness that a lot of white women have to even the idea that other women might have might have agendas and concerns that are, um, you know, that are different from their own, and that would that don't make sense, uh, you know, in terms of uh, their their lives. So, um, you know, and 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 the problem is is that the absence of, or you know, the absence of this ability to see that other women would prioritize different things is, I mean, it's not just in the past. Another example from the book is the example of the clean stove campaign in India, which is run by the UN and other agencies. And, um, you know, and, and in which a lot of white women uh, from environmentalists to, uh, you know, women's groups to, um, you know, a lot of other women who have leadership positions in the UN or in NGOs or civil society in general that contributes to this kind of development project. And they said, okay, well, these women in rural India and Rajasthan, um, they use these wood-burning stoves. And these wood-burning stoves are smoky and they you know, um, just, you know, they, they, they pollute and they use up fossil fuels in terms of like the wood. Um, and so we have these new stoves, these new clean stoves. And we're going to give them all these new clean stoves. And this was a, I, this is, I believe, like a billion dollar project over a decade. That was in a span over a decade. And we're going to give these, um, these new clean stoves to these women and they're going to use them and it's going to be a victory, a win-win for everybody. Uh, you know, because the environmentalists be happy because they won't be collecting, uh, <laughs> collecting wood for their stoves and the women's groups will be happy because now the women, uh, because they don't have to search for wood and because uh, they can cook faster, will be able to work. And when they'll, and once they're able to work, they'll, um, you know, have economic power. And then, you know, that econo economic power will allow them to have more decision-making power within the family and on and on, right? And what happened was that these stoves were supplied and supplied and supplied for a year. And Indian women in Rajasthan refused to use them. And so there became, began this question of like, why don't these women um, use these stoves, these clean stoves? Why are they still 
uh, reverting to their wood-burning stoves. And finally, someone actually went and asked the women themselves why they didn't do that. And the answer was that the wood stove, along with you know the process of going out and collecting the wood, played a very important part in these women's lives. First of all, they felt like they, you know, I mean, there were actual like technical problems in that, you know, these are far-flung villages and the clean stoves would break and then there would be no one to fix them. Or, you know, it wasn't something like the wood stove, which the women could essentially put together themselves. Second was that, and, and more, more interestingly, was that they said that, look, we like going out and searching for this wood with our friends. This is a very crucial part of our village sisterhood where we exchange information, we help each other out, we um, you know, try to solve our problems. It, it's very much a part of our lives. We don't want to, you know, it's, it's part of our sisterhood and we don't want to lose that. And then they also said that in terms of like the jobs that would be available to us if we'd used these other stoves um, are just menial jobs where we would be doing things like splitting rocks or carrying rocks for road projects and things like that. And, you know, it it's not even a subsistence salary. So why should we give up our tradition and what we see as our culture of sisterhood to go, you know, uh, carry rocks in some construction site that's far from our village. So point, of course, the larger point is, is that, you know, when you have this system where you have women at the top, um, with this kind of white woman savior mentality, um, they don't, not only do they not listen, but it's really like they truly do not, in my opinion, understand that other women might prioritize things differently or that they should have some parity in deciding how, you know, in this case, millions and millions of dollars are spent. So you have this enormous failure of this multi-million dollar program. And, you know, I would, I believe that the core of it was this hierarchy within feminism in which white women believe that they are um, essentially, they, ha they have uh, the right to make the agenda and that all other women should then quietly implement that agenda and congratulate white women for having come up with it. And, you know, as I, I lay out in the book, I mean, these are just a couple of examples that the book has a lot of them from many different parts of, you know, life and, and feminist activism. And uh, it shows that this sort of mentality is not just, uh, you know, like, oh, good intentions. Um, that that they just wanted to help. It actually has, you know, it has an emotional cost, it has a societal cost, and it has an actual, um, you know, 
like actual dollar cost in many cases, um, you know, and, and I could go on and on. I mean, you know, we're, we're withdrawing from Afghanistan at the end of this month. I mean, uh, the promote program that the U.S. implemented in Afghanistan it was the same sort of thing where, you know, they, it was a job training program for Afghan women. And it was such a complete failure that even after spending over $100 million, uh, you know how many women, uh, Afghan women were trained from this program? Less than 10, literally less than 10. So, I mean, it's time that we kind of, um, all of us feminists, uh, all of us women, um, had this uncomfortable conversation about race. Um, and started being honest so that, you know, these resources that can, that have the potential to, you know, do so much good are not just wasted because these conversations didn't take place. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Well, you gave a lot of examples of Black women and historically what they went through. Do you see that there's a difference among women of color and their stories and needs? I, I want you to explain that a little. Well, I mean, I, I'm not suggesting in the book that, you know, all women of color even have the same histories or the same, um, you know, the, the same priorities. Um, and n- nor is the book arguing for like, you know, some sort of very, idealistic kumbaya that has to happen even amongst women of color. I I think that there are, um, you know, there are, there are tremendous differences between even women of color. I mean, you said, uh, you, you know, you spoke specifically about black women. I mean, you know, I think within the American context, it is absolutely undoubted that, um, Black women have suffered more than absolutely and continue to suffer more than absolutely any other group. Um, uh, that is, you know, that is my, I, I, I truly think that. And I think that that is the reality. Um, and so, uh, but, but I think that that, that acknowledgement also uh, you know, in my, for me personally, imputes a sense of uh, deference to them uh, because they have endured so much uh, within the American, within the American context. But what the book tries to do is to show that, um, you know, for instance, Indian women have, or, 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 or you know, women, all the women who lived under British colonialism have 
endured a similar kind of servitude and continue to uh, endure it. But the nub of white supremacy that uh, is behind the suffering of Black women historically and today um, is very, it's the same, you know, it, it comes from the same place, this white and Western project of colonizing the world and settler colonialism. And they did the same thing, whether, you know, they came over to America and then started to import slaves, whether they went over to India and, you know, declared that all women, I mean, I talk, for instance, in this, in the book where about how um, they passed laws, which essentially said that all, nearly all women are prostitutes, brown women in India, the British did. And, you know, the, the sort of draconian forced genital examinations that were put in place because of that, the fact that, you know, the bodies of Indian women, because, you know, when they did that, uh, when they, you know, labeled all these women prostitutes, and then they caught them doing petty crimes, what they could then do is put all these women in prison. And then they took those women and essentially used them as slaves in other colonizing places. So, you know, I mean, there was, there was this, it was a very clever way of, of essentially creating, you know, making Indian women into slaves. And um, so, so, I mean, the, 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 the genesis of all of that is this, uh, this central issue. And, you know, I think that there are very good, much, you know, I mean, uh, excellent African-American women who have written in particular about the struggles of Black women. But what my book tries to do is, is to try to show how that, how those ideas, like what the American state does to Black women and to their bodies, um, is, is something they replicate, have replicated all over the word, that same kind of idea of domination. And, um, you know, whether it, it's, the, it's the sort of uh, degradation of other cultures, whether it's, uh, you know, I mean, just it, th there are innumerable examples. So I wanted, for, for example, for Black women, you know, to understand how that, how their experience, uh, their, you know, historical legacy of slavery, and then now continued discrimination, more than, like I said, any other group, um, is connected to um, this larger sort of inter international project of, you know, dominating and demeaning uh, all other brown Asian, Latinx women around the world. It's, it's, it's also a story of how those ideas of white supremacy are proliferated and entrenched in so much of, um, in so much of the world where, uh, you know, whether it's development projects, whether it's sort of cultural 
uh, framing, all of it, um, so that they would have, they would have, I think, a text that that showed them the connection between the life of, say, a young African American, um, you know, college student at, you know, at say, um, City University, where or City College, where I taught in Harlem, and um, a young girl in Pakistan. Uh, there are connections there. And I wanted, uh, or I hope that all these different women will be able to see them. You know, we're looking at a um, new generation of, of women today, and they have so many opportunities that I'm just seeing that we know the historical past, but today, Things are open for all women. Um, they're open for all women, theoretically. Um, I don't believe, I mean, they're open for Black and Brown and Latinx and Asian women to the extent that they follow a white model of success. And, uh, are, you know, and, and I mean, to the extent that they get entry into them. Um, you know, I mean, um, I definitely faced a lot of discrimination in terms of, uh, you know, when I, when I first graduated from law school, um, and it's because, you know, the image of the young female lawyer is a white woman. And, um, and, and, and it, it's proliferated by judges, it's pr proliferated by just many, many institutions. Um, and to the extent that there are minority women, it's expected that they're going to work like, you know, not for the top law firms, but like, you know, as a public defender or as a prosecutor at best. So, um, no, I mean, I, I, I think that it's important for women of color and girls of color to absolutely take up any and all opportunities that are available to them. But, you know, with the opening of more opportunities than before, I mean, you are, you're absolutely right in saying that there are more opportunities than existed before. But I also fear that until, unless we have this conversation, um, you know, women of color are just going to have to pretend to be white if they want to make it, you know, basically. So um, the better you are at doing that, the more, you know, you dress white, the more you talk white. Uh, you know, the, I mean, I ended up working at uh, a civil rights law firm that uh, was all African-American. Um, and I guess, except for me as a uh, Pakistani American. Um, and that was another place where I, I learned how, um, you know, and the, uh, how women uh, of color just don't, they don't inhabit the same world that white women do. And it appears, the thing I worry about the most is that now, they are they are becoming more visible and getting farther than they did before and the closer they get to sort of parity with white women to these or or try 
to get there, get to parity with white women, the more sort of hidden ways of perpetuating racism are evolving. I mean, just today I wrote a CNN piece on, you know, uh, the ESPN anchor, Rachel Nichols, who was caught on tape saying that, you know, the, that, that the, the Black woman that, that got her spot was only there because, you know, they're doing the diversity thing and, and they're not going to be able to get rid of me because this is my thing. So, I mean, it's a hurtful, very hurtful conversation to listen to as a woman of color, but I think it's a conversation that I know happens among white people all the time and a conversation that they don't believe is racist when it is. So, um, so you know, I mean, I, I do feel like uh, that, that there is an urgency to this in that, you know, that, that unless we sort of have this difficult conversation, uh, honestly, I think feminism is, I mean, in terms of its ability to actually empower and produce change for all women will be, you know, uh, will be dead um, because of this belief that white women have that they that they won the space that they occupy from white men, and now how dare women of color encroach on that space? And what I'm saying is that, you know some of the reason white women have that space is because they're white, you know? And whiteness confers tremendous amounts of privilege and um, opportunities that the rest of us don't have. You made some really good comments about what you saw in our society. And you said about the white women wanting parity with white men at any cost. Right. Talk to us more about that. Well, I mean, you know, it is, uh, I, I guess something I haven't talked about yet is, is uh, the model of success. I mean, in addition to um, all the other sort of, you know, what I would say genealogical histories of how obviously white, whiteness has dominated in America, in the world, um, there is, uh, you know, the feminist movement was by and large a white movement. And I go through a lot of, I take a lot of pains in the book to show how it continues to be a white, largely white movement. Um, and the, you know, take like, for instance, the Women's March. I mean, you know, um, most of the women who could participate in it, who had the money, who had the time, who could get a hotel, and, and who honestly felt safe enough to do that, um, were white. Um, and so, yes, I mean, I think that there is a sense of entitlement in white women in that they are pushing for equality with white men. And 
there almost seems to be a sense of um, disbelief among them that all the other women are not grateful to them for doing that. And that, that issue is a very problematic one. And, you know, I go again to like this, this article that I've recently written about this, this female anchor, because, you know, in different sections of it, of the tape and in other interviews, she talks about, you know, how she's put in the time and she's put in, you know, she's done all the right things and how dare this, this black woman come take her place. Um, and I mean, you know, her words could be the words of like quite literally millions of white women all over America. The corporate capitalist model of sort of, you know, lean in, the lean in feminism, that is the dominant feminism, at least among white women, you know, who work in corporate America and are part of that capitalist economy. Um, that's that's the goal is to keep be 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 you know louder and pushier and uh, more sort of dominant than white men so that you can get ahead. But that sort of individualistic model of feminism uh, that essentially sees uh, you know ev- like I mean they they they're more than happy to throw everyone else under the bus if it ensures their own ascent. And um, so, you know, I mean, that, 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 is, uh, that is the the model that I'm calling out because I think that it's that model and, um, and what, as you know, as you quoted, this idea of getting ahead at any cost that I think has really, in some ways been a death blow for feminism simply because it's this idea that achievement is only possible if you you work alone you know or or with other white women who look like you who come from the same class background etc cetera, etc cetera. um and what i'm prescribing is you know a model that that is truly sort of focused on on sisterhood and on solidarity and on this idea that, you know, if we work collectively, at least on some dimension, we women of all colors can also, that also can, can produce incredible achievement. But that sort of working together is not happening because like I said, um, you know, there's all, there are all these, you know, it's sex in the city is promoting, promoted white, you know, white general culture as, you know, this feminist and empowered culture and, you know, other aspects show, um, you know, I mean, one of the things, for instance, that I, that I see all the time um, lately is stories of how the first white women who discovered this or who did that or, you know, uh, there was a story, you know, that I saw one time just tweeted on Twitter, which was like the first white women to travel the length of the Colorado River 
uh, you know, this is their story. And or they didn't say first white woman, I'm sorry, the first woman. Um, and I was like, well, they might be the first white women, but they're not the first women. Surely there were a lot of native peoples living, um, living around that very area that almost certainly, um, you know, were, were on the Colorado River and would have, you know, traversed it. And the point being is nothing is considered done until a white woman does it. So when a white woman does it, it's, a, it's suddenly worth doing. Oh, and it's always, um, you know, that white woman representing all of it. So, um, you know, the, the first woman to discover, uh, you know, to work, in, work as a scientist, for instance, they would have. Um, and of course, it'd be a, a white woman. And then, you know, all the rest of us were supposed to kind of get behind that. And, and, and there is a, that, there's a problem there uh, because you're not telling the stories of, of different kinds of lives, of different kinds of achievement. You know, um, one example of different in terms of different kinds is that, um, you know, I take the women that I knew growing up in Pakistan and uh, you know they weren't rebellious but they were very resilient and they raised families and they educated their kids and they did a lot of things that were very you know uh, take my my own mother like she got into the car and drove halfway across a very crowded and um, you know crime-ridden city so that I could go to this amazing all-girls school and um so you know resilience is also rebellion is important but resilience is also important but we never really um you know center a discourse around that because it's assumed that you know a brown woman is only really um worthy of the feminist label if she rebels um, so, so yeah, you know, you've brought out a lot of good information and I want to thank you for the book. What would you say the solution would be because of all the chaos that's going on with women of all colors? I think, um, in the immediate sense, the solution is really for white women to recognize that the discomfort that they might feel, you know, for instance, from reading a book like, like Against White Feminism, is the discomfort that women of color feel all the time. So it's, it's, it's this, that there's a necessity to acknowledge that other people who are not white don't get to be themselves almost all the time, unless they're, you know, around just their own family or whatever. And I think that if white women truly recognize that, um, they would be able to do so much good and they would be able to come to the conversation from such a place of openness. 
Um, yeah, that's what I would say in the near term. In the in the, in, in the larger space, the books, you know, um, and devotes like the last part precisely to um, the fact that you know empowerment, even the word empowerment, was coined by brown feminists from a collective in India, and they understood that to mean a political struggle against misogynist institutions and patriarchy. And if, you know, all of us women together are to resuscitate feminism, because I do believe in it's, it's in a place where it needs resuscitation, um, it is in the recognition that this is centrally a political struggle. It's not a struggle of just more economic opportunity. It's not a struggle of just changing laws. It's, um, it's a political struggle that requires women to evaluate the cost of their decisions on other women um, and to organize politically around that premise. Um, I think that that, until feminism becomes political again, it can't be the force that it has the potential to be. Well, I've taken up a lot of your time and I've enjoyed the conversation. Can you tell the audience what are you working on next? <laughs> what I'm working on next? Well, um, you know, the, the next book I think is going to be um, an examination of, of marriage, not um, in terms of, you know, just marriage equality or, but in terms of, you know, I had an arranged marriage when I was 17 years old. And uh, I was, I was in that marriage for almost a decade. And so um, the next book is going to tell the story of that marriage. And then um, what it has um, made me think about and what it has taught me about the nature of love and the nature of, of that, you know, very central human relationship. Thank you so much. You're so welcome.